Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We will be looking in Luke chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 13, and you can find it in your pew Bible on page 859. Well, let us hear God's holy Word for the people of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, I think if we're honest, even at this moment, some of us need to be still because we're going too fast. And some of us need to be awakened because we are asleep. And so might we have a sense perhaps of a Moses moment that this is holy ground that we should take off our sandals and open our ears, O Lord, that as you would speak, your servants might in fact listen. We pray in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I would imagine many of you have probably experienced this before in one way or another, these optical illusions. One was brought to my attention even this week. You know what I'm talking about, right? The one that I saw this week, I've never seen before, but if I remember it correctly, it was a, it was a shoe, and it had a line and some shoestrings on it, and the question, of course, is what color is the shoe, and what color is the stripe? I think I got it right, but other people disagreed. And then maybe you've thought, no, I've not seen that, so you remember the dress. I don't even remember the colors. Is it gold or blue or... I- can't remember what colors were associated. And some of you go, I have no clue what you're talking about. So let's go back much further. Do you remember that picture? I remember seeing it in school. Is this a picture, and I want to say it ever so respectfully, of an old woman or a beautiful young woman? Now we think both are beautiful, but just for the sake of argument, do you remember this picture? And you were to look at it and you would give an answer. And some would say one and Others would say the other. And the reality is, if you probably forced yourself and you knew what to look for, you might actually be able to see both. 
That's actually what's most important here this morning is there might in fact be what you might say an evangelical optical illusion. We are trained to look at this passage in one particular way and what we need to be reminded of, what should we be looking for? You see, it's very popular in the church today to preach and teach this passage and we ask a question, maybe you've asked it or been asked. Well, Jesus resisted temptation, so how do you do it? Or look at what Jesus did, you do that. And what we have tended to do is we've, we've shifted this focus to say, well, how do I do this? If Jesus can do it, I can do it. I think if that's your understanding of this passage, you've missed the entire point. Luke is not trying to tell you about your temptations, but about Jesus's. Some that are, in fact, quite unique to him. Some that you do not, in fact, experience. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that there aren't principles in this passage in which you can say, I see what happened to Jesus. Maybe there are, in fact, some biblical principles that we can fight temptation with, but that's not the point you see. Luke's point is to slow us down and to say, let me tell you what to look for. Who is Jesus? And he's teaching us something powerful about Jesus, not as much about Danny and my life. And so I want to look at this passage in two points. The first is confronting the enemy. And then secondly, God's plan of salvation. First, confronting the enemy. Look at these first two verses. They, they seem to be almost like a transition and you just kind of leave it because you're so accustomed to hearing about these three temptations of Christ that we, we move so fast from what Luke and in fact Matthew will give to us. But Luke is drawing your attention and saying, slow down for a moment. There's something here that you and I most desperately need. Where is Jesus? Well, he's, he's in the wilderness. And perhaps you've already thought about it. He's not in the wilderness by accident. He's actually not in a location and it's a, well, you're not supposed to be there, Jesus. You took a wrong turn. Google misled you. That's not at all where he is. And you understand that, don't you? Because what does Luke say? He says the Holy Spirit led him, that God pushed, or if you're reading Mark's account, it has an aggressive nature to it. He thrusts him into the wilderness. He drives him there. And notice what he's doing. Jesus is in the wilderness doing something that deprives him, and you and I might know something of it, of comfort of basic needs, he's, he's fasting. Now, we don't have enough time to talk about fasting, but you understand some of the, the, the foundation, right? Of what is fasting? What are we to learn in fasting? Well, we are to learn that we are entirely dependent upon God. We are dependent creatures and everything that we have comes from him. And I think there's this other message that says, and when you're there, what you are to learn, to be confronted with is that God is better than everything else. 
better than food, better than gifts. But that takes some time, doesn't it? If you've ever fasted intentionally, maybe unintentionally, you skipped a meal. You can sense your body is telling you you need something. And yet Jesus is depriving himself. And there's this reminder that God is better than food and gifts themselves. He's in the wilderness, but why? He's been led there, he's been driven there, but there's an oddity in this statement, isn't it? What is Jesus doing that seems so different than what you and I would do? Jesus is in the wilderness confronting temptation. We are often confronted by temptation. And we need to recognize this is what is happening. Luke is saying, he's already let us know. Pastor Smith was uh, illustrating this point last week for us. The genealogy of Jesus. There's something theological that we need to be reminded of that Jesus finds himself in the bloodline of Adam. That's exactly what Luke says in verse 38 of chapter three. The son of Adam, the son of God, he's not just simply trying to give you a family tree to be excited about. He's saying there's something here about Adam that you and I need to give our attention to. What does it mean that he is in the bloodline of Adam? What do we remind ourselves in Adam? Adam, what's well, a bloodline of disobedience, isn't it? Of judgment, of death. And I think what he's saying here is, this is the second Adam, the last Adam, and he's, he's here in this wilderness to pay the penalty for what Adam has done. He's redeeming and reordering all things. That's why he's out here. It wasn't a wrong turn. It's Jesus, the Son of God, the last Adam. And yes, I think some of you have probably thought this, Jesus is the better and, and truer Israel. But I think if you're trying to understand that point, you need to read Matthew's account. Luke, I think, is trying to draw your attention to something different. He's not trying to say that Jesus is the better Israel, although that is true. I think Luke is trying to say, you haven't gone far enough back. You need to read Genesis chapter three if you want to understand what Luke is saying. He's taking us right back into the garden, isn't he? What are we to think about? This, this replay, you might say, of the Garden of Eden. But it, yet, you're reading the account and you're going, I, I can see that connection, but it's so different. This doesn't sound anything like the garden. We're not looking at beautiful colors. We don't have luscious trees and fruits. It's not a good day in the office getting to name all the animals and not get bit or anything of that nature. That's not at all what he's experiencing, is it? No, you see what Jesus is doing. He's bringing victory out of defeat. He's bringing, he's bringing blessing out of curse life out of death. All of the gospel writers are clear on this point. You see, temptation did not come first to Jesus. He met temptation in its own territory. He took the fight to the territory of the evil one. He wasn't being confronted by the evil one. He went right into it. He's coming 
as the aggressor here. It's, it's that Luke 11. Actually, all of the gospel writers have an account like this. You remember? The strong man. When you enter the strong man's house, what is he? He's fully armored. He, he keeps a close watch on all of his things. He takes care of his possessions, as it were. And, and until you can bind the strong man, you can't plunder his stuff. And what's, what's happening here? Luke's saying, here's the stronger man. It's Jesus. He's entering into Satan's house, as it were. And he's defeating him. He's beginning this fight to say, I am the strong man. Let me show you who I really am. And how do you recognize that? Because you remember the Genesis 3 account. What is it that we are reminded of in Genesis chapter 3? Adam faced temptation in a world full of life. And Jesus faces it in a world of death. Adam is tempted once, falls, and three curses follow. Jesus is tempted three times, and eternal blessings come with it. Adam lived in a sinless world and sinned and sent the world into sin. Jesus lived in a sinful and fallen world and did so sinlessly. Do you see what Luke is doing here? He, he wants you to understand before you get to these temptations, there's something we need to remember about Adam and this last Adam. You see, in the first Adam, we fall. The last Adam, we stand. The first Adam, we die. But this Adam, we live. And when you have the fact that Jesus has entered into the enemy's territory to confront such an issue, now you and I are prepared to go, well, what were these temptations then? And how are they so unique to Christ? Well, let's take a look at it. It demonstrates God's plan of salvation. Or in other terms, what does our sin require for us to be called a child of God? The first is this stone into bread. Now, before we get too close into it, I, I do want to make a comment because I think, well, I think we're now beginning to live in a society that is diminishing who Jesus really is inside the church. Sometimes this is how we try to evaluate Christianity and specifically Christ. Well, he only experienced three temptations. That was it. He had three chances and he passed. And so it's not that big of a deal. There was only three. And he only had to do it once. His, the rest of his life was okay. You remember that hymn. From life's first cry to final breath. That is the temptation that Jesus enters. Every moment of every day was a temptation for him. Why? Because he actually never sinned. You see, when you give in to sin, it's no longer a temptation, it's indulgence. But as long as you say no, and as long as you stay away, and as long as you try to fight, it just ever increases. And the Son of God had never fallen to temptation. 
every single moment of his life was full of temptation. And I think that's Luke's kind of point here when he says he's been fasting for 40 days. And in case you didn't realize what that really meant, he says what? And he was hungry. He's saying the son of God is man. And it's so easy for us to go, he was fully God and fully man. So this wasn't a big deal. This was a huge deal. You see, the son of God is not in the wilderness because he needed something. He's in the wilderness because man needs something. And he has to do it as a man. Now, what are we to make of this? Because look at what he says here. He's in the wilderness. Interestingly enough, if Genesis 3 is our comparison, he's not in the garden redoing it with the right choice, just don't eat from that tree. He doesn't get to start at the beginning. Jesus starts at the end to bring to us a new beginning. And here is the temptation that comes to him. Let's hear it fresh. The devil says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, I think it's probably popular thought there to consider what is Satan saying? Is that a question, a temptation to Jesus to perhaps infuse doubt into him? I'm not sure you really are the son of God. If you are the son of God, actually, I don't think that's what Luke is saying here. I don't think that's what the devil is doing. You know, in the original language, what you're looking at here is what you might call a, a simple condition or a first class condition. And that is to say, for the sake of argument. And so he's saying, if, for the sake of argument, if you really are the son of God, then make this stone bread. Paul does something similar, you see, in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you remember he's talking about the resurrection? Well, if there's a natural body, then there's a resurrected body. What is he saying? Well, if there's one, then there's the other. Because this is true, you can tell that this is true. And so if you wanted to help you understand what Satan is doing here, I don't think we need to read it as if, the, if you are the son of God. Satan is saying something like this, since you are the son of God. And what is he telling him? Well, since you're the son of God, Jesus, you have certain rights. You are the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. You have rights. You've created all of these things. It's yours. There's no need or good reason for you to be hungry. You can just answer the problem because you're the son of God. This is your very right. You don't have to be hungry. You know, John the Baptist said something like that. Is it the issue of turning stones into bread? You remember he said, God can take these stones and bring worshipers out of it. In just a few chapters, Jesus is gonna take a couple of pieces of bread and make a lot. Is the issue making bread? I don't think that's the issue. I don't think that is what is happening here. Jesus isn't in the wilderness, like we said, because he has a need. He's in the wilderness because we have a need. He's in the bloodline of Adam. And so when Adam was told not to take and not to eat, he took and eat. And Jesus is obeying by saying, I will not take and I will not eat. 
Because if you remember Matthew's account and probably how you've memorized this verse, you remember what he says, don't you? Man shall not live by bread alone. That's his answer. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. If Jesus is coming in our place, he must be a man and live as a man. Where Adam would take food and exalt himself, Jesus says no and humbles himself before the Father. And so Satan continues. Well, he takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He says, all this authority can be yours. All this glory can be yours. I'll give it to you. You can have it. It's yours. You just need to worship me. And you can, you can hear the subtlety of the temptation. Jesus, it is yours. And it, in fact, is his. Psalm 2 tells us the nations are his inheritance. Daniel 7 says the same thing. The world is yours. You can have it. You earned it. It was given to you by your father. You can even simplify the mission. We can wrap this thing up right now and go home. It's over. It's yours. You can have your crown. You can be the king. Now, Satan says he has this authority. Whether or not he did or didn't. What we can be assured of, the Bible tells us, that he's the prince of the world. But he has no authority by possession, only by permission. And so he's saying to Jesus, you can have this kingdom, the world. But God had told him, you cannot have it that way. They are yours, my son. But you will not have a crown without a cross. You see... For Jesus to live as a man, to take the place of sinners, it would take suffering before glory. And so as much as, yes, the world is his, it's not his yet. He has not redeemed it yet. But you can see the the power in those words. Luke says that Satan shows him the world. Remember the last time Satan showed something? showed Eve the fruit. Just look at it. Look at what it looks like. There's something there, isn't that? That temptations, they press in on something that's inside of us, and yet the Lord calls for something outside of us. He drives us to his word. Do you believe the word of God? Or do we trust ourselves in the heart of man? It's remarkable. That was the temptation. Here's the world. And you and I might even think, well, then Jesus should put up a fight here and argue. Well, that's not true, Satan. It's not really yours. Why would you ask such a thing? Yes, of course it's mine. But he doesn't debate them. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't ask for clarification. He doesn't investigate anything of what Satan says here. He goes right to worship 
And he says, we're only to worship the Lord. Doesn't that shock you? Doesn't that surprise you that what Jesus is saying is there's something so powerful about worship that even if you could have the whole world, it doesn't compare to what you've been called to do in worshiping our triune God. That there's something so controlling, so uplifting, so satisfying in this hour that the entire world couldn't meet that satisfaction of yours. But come into the throne room of God and he'll do it for eternity. There's something powerful about worship. That's what we say even to our children. What's man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's worship. That's worship and that's where the temptation is. And Jesus says, we are not to worship any but the Lord. And so then the enemy takes him. He, he takes him from showing him the, the kingdoms of the world and he takes him to the top of the temple. And you, you see what he's doing, right? He's not saying, I don't think you had a good view over here. Let's get to the top. Maybe if you had a better view, you might change your mind. No, he, he's actually at the top of the temple for something very different, isn't it? This ought to scare us. You see, Satan has tempted him twice and you've already picked up on it. And Jesus has answered, it is written, it is written. But what happens here? Satan begins in a temptation with what? It is written. Now give yourself some thought there. Who is quoting scripture here? It's Satan and he's not being like some street preacher that just says the Bible says and it's some kind of random paraphrase and you don't know where it is. What is he doing? He's literally word for word quoting Psalm 91. Word for word. You keep saying it is written. Well, it's also written here. That's his temptation. What does that tell you and me? Satan knows the word of God. And if we're honest... He knows it better than we do. And it ought to make us pause because here he is before the Son of God and he says, it is written. Do these things, just jump and you'll be okay. But the problem with what Satan says, you might have already seen it. It's not that he didn't quote scripture correctly. It's that he has a problem with his hermeneutics, his study, his interpretation of Scripture. Because what do we understand as the first principle? Scripture interprets Scripture. So Jesus could say to him, Satan, you're right. That is Psalm 91. But you have falsely applied that text. That is not what it means. You are wrongfully drawing a conclusion. Satan is simply just saying, you know that you can't fall. Why don't you just prove it and jump. And that is where Jesus says, but jumping, it's not proving my faith. It's testing the Lord. God, are you actually true? Are you real? Did you mean what you said? He's not demonstrating faith by jumping. He's demonstrating a lack of faith by jumping. Sometimes we say that casually. You just got to have faith. And sometimes you're probably wondering, what does that even mean? We use that phrase so quickly, sometimes hurtfully. If by faith it just means hope for the best. 
that's, that's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible is never saying to take a risk and do something stupid to see if God will help. It never is God saying that. Do you believe what he has said? How do you have faith? We're not always looking for supernatural things. What more of a supernatural thing do you need? He created the world. He incarnated his son. His son lived perfectly. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. What supernatural thing do you need? He says, faith isn't going to be grounded in looking for more supernatural things. Faith is in the ordinary things of everyday life. Do you really believe that I am good? I've given you breath. Do you believe that I'm good? I've given you food and shelter. I've given you life in my son. Jesus is saying, do not test God, Satan. God had his plan of salvation and you're asking me to create my own. That is the test. And so I will not do it. Don't you see how conflicting and confronting these temptations are? They're showing how broken we are, aren't they? How damaging and destructive sin can be. This is not a moralistic account that just says, see what Jesus did, now do that. Try a little bit harder. If you'll just quote some scripture, you're guaranteed not to sin. None of that is being presented to us here. That's not at all what's happening Jesus defeating Satan isn't your assurance that you can defeat Satan. You and I can't defeat Satan. The assurance that we get is that we build on Jesus's victory. You fight the good fight in Christ, not for Christ. You're not trying to wave your arms and go, look down here, God, I'm doing a good job. I'm really representing your son well. That's not what we're saying. And we should never say that. We should say, please look down here. I'm really struggling. Give me your son and bear me up on him. Build me up in him. Let the truth find its way deep into my heart. You see that tree that Adam and Eve so desired. We're gonna get the other tree at the end. And John's gonna talk about the tree of life coming back, but that tree never comes unless there's a wilderness. Not your wilderness or mine, but the Son of God, that is Jesus. He is the true and better Adam. We need to walk away with a, a real sense of necessity and sufficiency for his word. It's how you get to know him. You can't just go out in the woods without a Bible and look around and go, man, I've gotten to know Jesus by these trees. You can know that there is a God, but if you want to know the Son of God, you've got to open his word because it is the only rule of faith in life for practice. You, you don't know how to live until you open it. We have to grow in our sense of necessity for it, sufficiency and maybe some songs might need to come to mind. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. 
when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. Do you want an encouragement from this text this morning that Jesus would pay for your sin and give to you eternal life? Do you need another encouragement? One is simply this. You might find yourself right now, you might be saying, I have a little bit of a wilderness. Did I do something wrong? Did I make a wrong turn? Am I in sin? You can ask those questions, but you need to know that that's not the only reason you face temptations in life. There are times in life that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing and you're where you're supposed to be doing it. And that is where God has you. And yet he reminds you, but you're never alone. I am with you. For those of you who don't know Christ, I want you to hear us say it. Coming to Christ is not gonna solve all your problems. In fact, if I'm honest, in our world, it might actually bring some more. But that's not the point of what Christ is doing. He's not trying to make your life comfortable here. He's trying to make it extravagant there. He's bridging the gap to glory. Trusting in Christ and following the Holy Spirit, it might not lead you around temptation. It might lead you right in front of it. But there is good news. This table tells you He's got the victory. You don't have to be afraid because he's paid it all and you can trust his record of righteousness and live in his word and he will help you all the way home. Let's pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we are quite clear that things aren't right in the world. And sometimes we need to be clear that things aren't right in my heart. And yet the good news of the gospel, even this day, is that Jesus went right into that territory where we are told to flee and go and do not let the sin so easily entangle us. Jesus marched right in to fight. The reason why we look more like Israel is because we are like Israel Those are so quick to rebel and go away from you. And yet it's your son that has come near to us. And he has paid the price in the wilderness that we might get a garden, a garden of eternal life with the glory of our triune God. So help us to trust you with it. Help us to know that your defeat of temptation gives to us the anchor. That is that our sin has been paid for. Our life, for those who trust you, are hid with Christ on high. Might we trust you? Might we follow you? Might we know you by looking to your word? We ask in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.